PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to PTJ's The Bottom Line for July 2009. I'm Donovan Stutel along with Dave Corvoisier. Bottom Lines translate the findings of selected research articles for clinical practice. Bottom Lines are not intended to substitute for a critical reading of the original articles. The Bottom Lines for the July 2009 issue of PTJ were written by Dr. Eric K. Robertson, Assistant Professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta, Georgia. Our first bottom line summarizes manual therapy, exercise, and traction for patients with cervical radiculopathy, a randomized clinical trial by Ian Young, Dr. Lori Michener, Dr. Joshua Cleland, Dr. Arnold Aguilera, and Dr. Allison Snyder. First, what problems did the researchers set out to study and why? Cervical radiculopathy can be a disabling condition as patients experience pain in the neck and into the arm or hand. Patients with cervical radiculopathy have several treatment options available, ranging from surgical procedures to conservative interventions. Investigations into the optimal conservative intervention are few, and current approaches to the physical therapist management of cervical radiculopathy are based on incomplete evidence and expert opinion. Thus, the authors set out to perform a randomized clinical trial to assess the effect of intermittent cervical traction, a commonly used intervention for cervical radiculopathy, as part of a multimodal treatment program for patients with cervical radiculopathy. Who participated in this study? 81 individuals participated in the study. To be included, participants were required to demonstrate signs and symptoms consistent with cervical radiculopathy, that is, pain in the hand or arm with or without neck pain, and meet three out of four criteria on a previously established clinical prediction rule that has been shown to identify patients with cervical radiculopathy. The four criteria are a positive Spurling's test, a positive distraction test, a positive upper limb tension test 1, and ipsilateral neck rotation that is less than 65 degrees. Exclusion criteria consisted of a history of cervical or thoracic spine surgery, bilateral upper extremity symptoms, medical red flags, or the use of steroidal medication or injection within the past two weeks. What new information does this study offer? The addition of supine intermittent cervical traction to a multimodal treatment program for cervical radiculopathy did not produce an added treatment benefit. What new information does this study offer for patients? This trial is another example of research demonstrating that more treatment is not always better. In this case, adding traction to a physical therapy program consisting of postural education, manual therapy, and exercise did not provide an additional benefit. The baseline care was sufficient. This is an important result because in some settings, adding another treatment to a physical therapy program means the patient will incur additional charges. How did the researchers go about the study? Participants were randomly assigned to either 1. a multimodal treatment group and sham traction, or 2. a multimodal treatment group plus traction. The multimodal treatment consisted of four weeks of thrust and non-thrust manipulation to the cervical and thoracic regions. 
therapeutic exercise, and postural correction. The traction intervention consisted of supine intermittent cervical traction beginning at 20 pounds or 10% of the patient's body weight and was progressed to a maximum of 35 pounds. The participants and clinical support staff who collected self-reported outcome measures were blinded to group assignment. How might the results be applied to physical therapist practice? The results of this trial suggest that there is no additional benefit to adding supine intermittent cervical traction to a multimodal treatment approach for patients who have cervical radiculopathy. What are the limitations of the study, and what further research is needed? The researchers acknowledged several limitations to this trial. First, the clinical prediction rule used to identify eligible participants has not been validated. Second, the effectiveness of subject blinding was not assessed, and this is important in a trial where the primary outcomes are self-reported. Future studies should investigate different dosages of cervical traction. More research is required to determine the optimal combination of interventions for cervical radiculopathy. Our next bottom line summarizes short-term effects of high-intensity laser therapy versus ultrasound therapy in the treatment of people with subacromial impingement syndrome, a randomized clinical trial by Dr. Andrea Santamato, Dr. Vincenzo Sofrizzi, Dr. Francesco Panza, Dr. Giovanna Tondi, Dr. Vincenza Frisardi, Dr. Brian Ligon, Dr. Maurizio Ranieri, and Dr. Pietro Fiore. What problems did the researchers set out to study, and why? Subacromial impingement syndrome is a common and painful condition of the shoulder. No studies have specifically compared ultrasound therapy to high-intensity laser therapy for treating subacromial impingement syndrome. The goal of the researchers was to compare the effectiveness of these two forms of treatment for subacromial impingement syndrome. Who participated in this study? Seventy participants with confirmed grade 1 or grade 2 subacromial impingement syndrome were included in the study. Patients were excluded from the study if they had anesthetic or corticosteroid injections in the four weeks preceding the study, surgery or previous fracture of the humeral head, impaired rotation of the glenohumeral joint as measured by goniometry, a history of acute arthritis, known osteoarthritis in the shoulder, or known ruptures of the rotator cuff. Patients also were excluded if they had one of several systemic conditions, such as systemic lupus erythematosus, diabetes, thyroid dysfunction, and anxiety-depression syndromes. What new information does this study offer? Compared with the ultrasound therapy group, the researchers observed statistically significant reductions in pain and improvements in articular movement and muscle strength in the high-intensity laser therapy group. The changes in pain exceeded the minimal clinically important difference. What new information does this study offer for patients? The use of high-intensity laser therapy may offer greater improvements in pain, motion, and strength when compared with ultrasound therapy for patients with subacromial impingement syndrome. How did the researchers go about this study? Participants were randomly assigned into a high-intensity laser therapy group or an ultrasound therapy group. The high-intensity laser therapy and ultrasound therapy were administered a total of 10 times during two weeks. The high-intensity laser therapy treatment was administered by a physiatrist 
and the ultrasound therapy was administered by a physical therapist. No other treatment was delivered during the course of the study. The researchers collected data on pain, muscle strength, functional movement, and information from two outcome measures, the constant Murley scale and the simple shoulder test. Outcomes were assessed after two weeks. How might the results be applied to physical therapist practice? Physical therapists deciding between ultrasound therapy and high-intensity laser therapy as part of a comprehensive program for subacromial impingement syndrome might use the results of this trial to choose in favor of high-intensity laser therapy. What are the limitations of the study, and what further research is needed? The study was limited by a small sample size, lack of placebo or control groups, and a limited follow-up period. The fact that the trial was conducted without the addition of other commonly administered treatments for subacromial impingement syndrome and the fact that 10 treatments were delivered over only two weeks may limit the clinical applicability of this information. Our next bottom line summarizes measurement of paretic lower extremity loading and weight transfer after stroke by Dr. Vicki Stimmons-Mercer, Dr. Janet Kuiz-Freeberger, Dr. Shou-Siu Chang, and Dr. Jama Purser. What problems did the researchers set out to study and why? Stroke is a leading cause of disability, and the resulting hemiparesis can have a significant impact on sitting, standing, and walking activities. Impaired loading of the paretic limb and weight transfer between limbs have been associated with functional deficits. Limb loading and weight transfer are key goals in rehabilitation training following stroke for individuals with lower extremity motor impairments. The standard measure, force platforms, are expensive, so the researchers set out to examine the validity of other clinical tools. Paretic limb load was examined using the step test and the knee extension component of the upright motor control test, and the repetitive reach test served as a measure of weight transfer in individuals in the first six months following stroke. Who participated in this study? 33 individuals with lower extremity motor impairment following unilateral non-cerebellar stroke participated in the study. Lower extremity motor impairment was defined as a score of 28 or less on the Fugelmeyer assessment. Individuals were included who were medically stable, could follow three-step commands, could reach in all directions while sitting without support, and had adequate hearing and vision to complete the study protocol. Participants were not included if they had a history of prior stroke. They were not previously independent community ambulators. They had a terminal illness, or they had pain or limitations that interfered with daily activity performance. What new information does this study offer? The step test was a valid measure of paretic limb loading following stroke. The step test had the highest correlation with force platform tests. The correlations in measures of paretic limb loading between the force platform and the knee extension component of the upright motor control test were less strong than the step test. The repetitive reach test did not correlate strongly with force platform measures of weight transfer. What new information does this study offer for patients? 
The results of this study suggest that the step test is a valid measure compared with force platform tests to assess paretic limb loading. The step test is an easy-to-administer clinical test. Two other clinical tests are not recommended to examine limb loading or weight transfer. How did the researchers go about the study? Three clinical tests were administered once monthly for six months. The step test included placing the non-paretic limb repeatedly on a step over 15 seconds. The knee extension component of the upright motor control test was performed without an assistive device and required the patient to bend the knees and then attempt to return to an extended knee position using just the paretic limb. The repetitive reach test was performed by having the patient reach back and forth repeatedly using the non-paretic arm. These clinical tests were compared to a battery of force platform tests to measure convergent validity. How might the results be applied to physical therapist practice? The step test is a valid, easy-to-administer clinical test that can take the place of more involved force platform testing in the assessment of paretic limb loading. What are the limitations of the study, and what further research is needed? This study contained a relatively small sample size and a preponderance of individuals with left-side hemiparesis. Additional research is needed to determine reliable and valid methods to assess weight transfer after stroke. Future studies should aim to identify the relationship between step test scores and physical activity to determine how findings on the step test may affect other domains. Our next bottom line summarizes elastic, viscous, and mass load effects on post-stroke muscle recruitment and co-contraction during reaching, a pilot study by Dr. Tina Steckman, Dr. Catherine Sullivan, and Dr. Robert Scheidt. What problems did the researchers set out to study, and why? Muscle weakness is an important determinant of functional ability in many patient populations. Although resistive exercise training following stroke can increase muscle strength, the effect of the type of resistive load has not been previously studied. The force required to move against a viscous load, such as water, increases with movement speed. The force required to elongate an elastic load, such as elastic bands, increases with the distance as the material is stretched. For mass training, Acceleration and deceleration forces must be appropriately timed to move and stop the load. The researchers investigated the effect of load type, viscous, elastic, or mass, on muscle activation and co-contraction during a resisted forward-reaching task in paretic and non-paretic arms. Who participated in this study? Twenty participants. 10 with hemiplegia, and 10 age-matched controls were included in this pilot study. The experimental subjects were all classified as having moderate levels of disability on the Fugelmeyer motor assessment. They could follow directions, and they could push a handle away from the body at waist level against resistance. What new information does this study offer? Motor control deficits were present in both paretic and non-paretic arms during a pushing task for all load types in individuals following stroke. 
Compared with the non-paretic arm and control arms, the paretic arm demonstrated muscle recruitment and muscle selection deficits. Higher levels of muscle activation and co-contraction occurred, regardless of load type. What new information does this study offer for patients? This study helps physical therapists consider the effect that different types of resistance may have on recruitment of different muscles and amount of muscle activation during a specific activity. Viscous and elastic loads resulted in higher levels of muscle recruitment than the mass load for the anterior deltoid muscle in both the control and non-paretic limbs. People with stroke demonstrated different patterns of muscle recruitment and activation in both the involved and the uninvolved limbs compared with age-matched control participants. This information can help direct future research on the optimal type of resistance exercise to prescribe following stroke. How did the researchers go about the study? The participants performed a pushing task with both arms against resistive loads that required equivalent effort across the viscous, elastic, and mass loads. Normalized electromyographic data were recorded for prime movers and antagonists of the shoulder and elbow for this task. How might the results be applied to physical therapist practice? Following stroke, motor control deficits should be expected in both the paretic and non-paretic arms when reaching forward with different resistive load types. Based on the non-paretic limb response, the viscous loads elicited a strong muscle activation with minimal co-contraction. This could be a useful method to selectively target muscle strengthening as part of post-stroke strength training. What are the limitations of the study, and what further research is needed? The levels of impairment were variable among participants, and the researchers recommended that this be controlled more closely in future work. Additionally, the side on which the lesion occurred was not controlled, and the ability to match load to the participants' individual strength was limited. Future investigations should look at the effectiveness of different strength training interventions based on load type. The results of this study suggest that using the non-paretic arm as a control may be a flawed assumption. So, future studies should investigate this possibility. Our final bottom line summarizes treadmill testing of children who have spina bifida and are ambulatory. Does peak oxygen uptake reflect maximum oxygen uptake? By Yonka Frederica de Groot, Dr. Tim Taken, Sana de Graaf, Professor Rob Goshkins, Dr. Paul Helders, and Professor Luck Van Hees. What problems did the researchers set out to study, and why? The goal of this study was to determine if peak oxygen uptake measured during an incremental treadmill test is a valid measure of maximum oxygen uptake in children with spina bifida who are community ambulators. Because children with spina bifida have motor impairments even when ambulatory, the authors were concerned that measurements of peak oxygen uptake obtained using a treadmill test may be an underestimation. Who participated in this study? The participants were 20 subjects, 9 boys and 11 girls, with spina bifida who were classified as community ambulators. The participants were required to understand instructions for exercise and be healthy enough to perform a maximal treadmill exercise test. What new information does this study offer? The peak 
oxygen uptake measured during incremental treadmill testing reflected true maximum oxygen uptake in children with spina bifida who are ambulatory. Thus, treadmill testing is a valid measure of maximum oxygen uptake for this population. No differences between peak oxygen uptake and oxygen uptake during a supramaximal protocol were observed, although five children demonstrated increases in oxygen uptake during the supramaximal protocol. What new information does this study offer for patients? This study examined a common method of exercise testing for the determination of maximal oxygen uptake in children with spina bifida. Testing using a graded treadmill test in which the speed is gradually increased is a good measure of fitness capacity. Adding a final step of testing, one level beyond the point of maximal oxygen uptake, can provide additional information to the physical therapist and is a well-tolerated procedure. Valid measurements of maximum oxygen uptake will help physical therapists develop accurate exercise prescriptions. How did the researchers go about this study? The researchers used a cross-sectional design. The participants completed a graded treadmill test, the results of which were evaluated using previously established guidelines for maximal exercise testing in children, the Roland criteria. In addition, differences were examined for subject performance between peak oxygen uptake and oxygen uptake during a supramaximal protocol. The supramaximal protocol was 110% of maximal treadmill speed achieved by the participant. How might the results be applied to physical therapist practice? Graded treadmill testing provides valid measurements of oxygen uptake in children with spina bifida, and this information can inform exercise prescription. Furthermore, the study suggests that when confirmation of maximal effort is needed, the addition of supramaximal testing is a feasible and well-tolerated method of testing in children with spina bifida. What are the limitations of the study, and what further research is needed? The results of this study are most generalizable to children with spina bifida who are community ambulators. Those patients who do not meet this criterion might have different results. Also, the reliability of the exercise testing was not evaluated and might play a role in the overall utility of the testing. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We always appreciate your feedback. You can email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626-593-7825.